two people, but one. And I want to phrase it to you this way. You are genuinely new, but not totally new. Can I say it to you that way? You are genuinely new, but not totally new. We are in the already, but not yet. In other words, I'm a new person, but not everything about me is new altogether because you still struggle with sin. I don't know if you heard this. I, I heard this, I think, at a, a camp one time growing up, a Christian camp, where some pastor gave an illustration about a sermon about a grandfather was having a talk with his grandson, and he was trying to give him counsel about how to make right choices. And so he tried to explain it to him this way. He said to his grandson, you know, you have two wolves in you. One is a good wolf that represents all the good things that Jesus would want you to do. And you also have a bad wolf in you. And that's all the things that Satan would want you to do. And the little boy looks up at his granddad and says, well, Grandpa, who is going to win? And he got really close to him and he said, the one that you feed. That's a really moving illustration. But it isn't true. <laughs> we don't have two wolves inside of us, right? That, that's not, we don't have two people living inside of us. Um, there are not two wolves in either one of you. Um, we all fight and struggle, but it's not because we are Jekyll and Hyde. The Bible's very clear, and I wanted to show it to you in the text that we read in Colossians 3, that there are two things, it says. You have an old man, or depending on your translation, old self. Honestly, and I'm going to show you why, it's better probably translated um, you have put off the old self. I'm going to tell you that old humanity is better and new humanity is better. And I'm going to tell you why. But what this is not telling us is that we, have, we are bipolar believers. We're not. We don't have two, you know, two extreme opposites living inside of us. When you fight sin, if you have two natures inside of you, did you know if you took that view that that means that you were fighting against yourself? When you fight against sin... Our aim is to fight and conquer sin. We're not fighting ourselves in the sense that we are the problem in that way. That we are a new person. Now notice in the text, and I want to show you some things that are very important for you to understand if you're going to grasp this concept. Chapter 3 and verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, notice, with its practices. All right? Back up a little bit, and I'm going to tell you what that means. If you look up in chapter 3, in verse 1, it says that all the things he's talking about is grounded in the death and primarily the resurrection of Jesus. And the ability to live in victory over sin is not because you're fighting off and suppressing the other wolf that's in you or the hide that's in you. Here's what he says. Since you have been, and that's really what it is, it's a if you want to be technical, it's a first-class conditional phrase, which means not with question or doubt. It means because, since. Since you have been raised with Christ, and that's a reality, seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now watch. Why do you do that? Because, verse 3, for you have died past tense, right? So you have already died. And then he says, watch, you have died and you have died. And 
and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Verse 5. Now he's going to go from you are dead past tense to you have to be dead and kill things present tense. Verse 5. Put to death. See it? Therefore, what is earthly in you. So he said, remember, don't focus on the things on earth. Focus on the things in heaven. That's where Jesus is. That's where you look to know that you have victory over sin. But what do you do with the earthly part still left in you? That's what he says. You need to put it to death. You are dead. Now live it out. So he says, and if you don't, you're acting like a person whom the wrath of God is coming on. God judges people who live according to their sexual and sensual desires and deeds and have never changed. So he said, remember this, verse 7, and this you, or these you once walked when you were living. You used, ready? You used to be that way. This is a but now connection, right? So he says, you used to, or the word once in verse 7, but verse 8 is but now. So it's a before and after. The old man, the old self is you before you became a Christian, but when you became, watch, when you became a Christian, that old man died. So he's no longer in you. He is dead. That's what all, every lost person you know has one wolf in them, and it's the bad one. Just like you were before you were saved. But here's what happens to you when you get saved. The old man dies. That's what he says. And you used to walk that way. That used to be your lifestyle. He says, but now you can put them all away. So you put off him and you put all of them away. And then he has this vice list. There's two vice lists in here. Verse 5 and verse 8. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. But if you look back at the other one, ready? Stay with me. The other list is about all the things and most of them are about sensualities and lusts and desires. So here was our, we had a small group last night in our couples group. And, what, and their question was, what is the root cause of all of our problems? And it is our desires. So I asked them last night, what do you want in your marriage? So I would say tonight, ask yourself, why did you come to church tonight? Answer, because you wanted to. Because there's nothing that you do, not one single thing, either for good or bad, that you do that you don't want to. Have you ever told yourself, oh, I, I, should, I didn't really want to do that, but I did it anyways. Not true. Sounds good. It makes you feel better. We do, every time we do something, say, we say and do it because we want to. You could have chose not to come tonight, and you could have wanted to do something else. There were a lot of people who did, right? So here's what he says. When you become a Christian, ready? This is what happens to you. The old man dies, and with him, it says, his practices now, we don't have time tonight, but if you opened up Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, and you looked at the exact same formula that Paul puts together, he uses the same wording except he switches the last phrase. He says, you know what changes? Not your deeds, your desires. 
your desires. So here's the truth and reality. When you become a Christian, you get a new set of desires and you get a new set of deeds that come out of them. Right? So our constant battle as we fight against sin and we try to live out the new you and who you really are is it is a struggle from the inside out. Let me show you what I mean by that and why self is not the better translation but humanity. Do not lie to one another seeing you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. The put off and put on is a metaphor used in Romans 13, 2 Corinthians 4, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. Paul's very familiar using it. And he means this, to take off your present garments like a jacket and put on new clothes. Now, what is he trying to say? Well, read a little bit more. This is where you have to study and take your time. Ready? You put on the new self, the new clothes, which is renewed in knowledge. Ready? After the image of of its creator. Somebody tell me, what story would Paul be thinking of about someone having to take off their old clothes and put on their new clothes that God would have given them attached to a creation story telling us about people made in God's image? Did I give you enough to make it easy? Who was it? Come on. Yes, Adam and Eve, right? He's thinking of Adam and Eve. He's thinking the story. The first humanity that fell into sin, what happened to them? God had to put clothes on them, right? And he had to dress them. And he had to clothe them in his righteousness so that they could be restored to live out the image of God that was made into them. Now, what, did, what was the problem that they needed new clothes do you remember what Genesis 3, 6 says? That she saw the tree and it was, do you remember? It was, someone quote it, no? It was something to be mm, desired. She, she, she lost the battle there. And, and, and then she saw it was something to be desired because it was a knowledge to make someone wise. Do you remember when Paul tells Timothy that from a child you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise, but he adds a little bit, unto salvation. You see, there's a wisdom that comes from the devil and it leads to death. And there's a wisdom that comes from God that leads to salvation and Adam, Eve's fault and, and sin was that she desired to have an independent wisdom outside of God's laws where she was in control of what would be right and wrong. She had a desire to take his place. Have you ever thought about this where it says that Satan says that the, you, God says he knows that the moment that you eat the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Do you know how deep the lie is? She was already like God. She was created in his image. And he just said, oh, if you do this, then you'll be like God. And it wasn't that she would be like his God in his image. What, what, what did he mean by that? That you'll be like God. You can autonomously for yourself, not dependent on him, 
You can have your own knowledge and you can determine what's right and wrong for you. Did you see what the verse says? Verse number 10. Put on the new clothes, which is being renewed in what? Knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Not the knowledge that Satan gives. Not the independent from God kind of knowledge. But the knowledge that rests securely on the scriptures and knowing what God says. Now, that would be a complete change in desire. So here's what happens when you're a Christian, when you become the new you, right? You get saved. Your old man dies, and now you have one person, you, what you were always meant to be by God's grace. And now the goal is sanctification, that you grow to be who you were always made to be. And it's a life of choosing to continually desire God supremely over everything else. And can I tell you, that is very difficult to do day in and day out. Let me give you an illustration, one of my favorites. If you ever read Greek mythology, you'll know that there was the island of the sirens. Sirens were beautiful women who sang this unbelievably entrancing song. And it would lure you in. And it looked like it was going to be a great thing until you got on the island and walked up on the shore and didn't realize that the sirens were carnivorous man-eaters and they would kill you and eat you. Not a great ending of the story. But the song was so enticing. Thus the sirens. You hear that, you know, someone, you've heard the siren song. You must have, you know, you've turned off your mind and you just wandered in there, right? So there are two heroes in Greek mythology, Ulysses. Ulysses realized, because he heard the tales of everybody else who tried to overcome it on their own and could not and were killed. And so here's what he does. If you remember the story, he puts wax in his ears and has the men in the ship tie him to the mast of the ship with a rope. And he says, when we get close and the song is playing, and, you, and they have it in their ears too, here's what he says. I want you to take the wax out of my ears, but leave me tied up. So the sirens begin to sing. They get close to the island. And he is begging them to cut the ropes and let me go because he would have gone right away. But he makes it through and they sail on. Years later, according to Greek mythology, Jason with the team he has called the Argonauts, he comes by. He's going to go. He's not going to put wax in his ears and he's not going to be tied to the mast. And you know how he's going to make it? He hires the greatest musician in all the world, and his name is Orpheus. Orpheus comes with his lute and sits on the deck of his ship. And when they get within range that the sirens are going to begin singing any moment, Orpheus strikes up a song. And his song and his ability in music is so great that by the time they got to the other side and passed the ship, that Jason and the Argonauts never knew that they were ever near the island. You know why? Because his song was more beautiful than anything the sirens could sing. Good illustration in this way. A lot of Christians try to live their life as Christians and fighting against sin, here's what they do. Tie me to the mast. Put the wax in my ears. I'm trying to subdue the hide in me. I'm trying to beat down the old other wolf that I think lies inside. And we strap ourselves down and we think that holiness is only by subtraction. What I don't do. And so I'm good at, or try to be good as I can about saying no. But the real answer is this. Is to take the Orpheus 
option and let Jesus be the sweeter song. And that you learn to, and, and, and so we tell our kids, don't do this because it's bad for you. Say no. Do you remember when we were growing up, and this is how old I am, remember the D.A.R.E. program, the government, and, and Nancy Reagan, she said, here's how you can win against drugs. Remember? What did she say? Just say no to drugs. It is such a joke. In fact, 10%, went, that's how much drug addiction went up under that program. And you laugh at that, but you know what? We just say no to desires. That's what we do. We think that we can just say no, and we can set up boundaries. And we, Here's what God says. Not just no, but yes. There has to be a sweeter song that we teach our children that we are able to sing. L- let me tell you about this. There's a little book by a Puritan about 220 years ago. His name is Thomas Chalmers. He wrote a little book. In fact, it's a little series. It's not any bigger than this, and there's probably not even 100 pages in these little books. But Thomas Chalmers wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in it he writes, and I quote, There are two ways to attempt to displace from the human heart a love for the world. One is to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy. In other words, I don't want to have that desire for that. That is not worth it. He says that's one. And just try to say no. Pull yourself away with it. He says that's one way to go. He says the other way is by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of it than the other object. Not to resign an old affection, but to put in exchange a new one. So it's not enough just to say, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to talk that way. I'm not going to watch that on TV. I'm not going to look that way. He says, here's what you do. You need a new affection. It's not enough just to put off. He says, you have to put on. Not just get rid of the old desires, but put on new desires, he says. Let me give you a practical example, and I'll close. <laughs> Saying no does not automatically that mean that you will say yes, because yes, but yes automatically produces a no. And let me give you an example. So if I say yes to a salad, that automatically means I'm going to say no to a double cheeseburger. But if I say yes to a double cheeseburger, that does not mean I'm going to say no to the salad and vice versa, right? So we can say no to things for a while, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to say yes to God. And we have taught our children, and unfortunately we ourselves, that if they make it through life, all I want them to do is... When they go to school, say no to this. Don't get involved in that. Don't drink that. Don't smoke that. Don't have that girlfriend. Don't have that standard. No, 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 no. But just because someone says no to something doesn't mean that they're going to say yes to it, yes to God. And we have taught our children that the idea of going to school and growing up is merely survival and not doing the bad things. It's not enough. It's not just holiness by subtraction. There has to be holiness by addition. There has to be. And we don't have time tonight, but read James 4, 7, and 8. It's one command. Listen to it. It's a negative no sandwiched between two yeses. He says, submit to God, right? Resist the devil in the middle, 
and draw near to God. Do you see how it works? Submit to God, draw near to God are the two brackets, the two pieces of bread. And in between of it, it says resist the devil. But they are one and the same. See, if you say, I'm going to draw near to God, it automatically means you will resist the devil. But if you try to resist the devil and the bad things, it doesn't mean that you automatically will want to be like God. You have to build into your strategy of fighting sin and to teach your children that we battle sin with a yes and a no. We have to have what we have to put off and we have to put on. Our children desperately need to do. It's not enough that they don't hang out with the wrong kids and listen to the wrong music and watch the wrong videos. It's not enough. Good, but not enough. They need to find their delight and their treasure and their pleasure with God. Lastly, Hebrews 11, if you read the decision-making ability of Moses, it says when he became of age, which was 40 years old, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's a big N-O. 40 years in the palace with the royalty and the riches and the comfort and the power, he refuses to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter any longer. Right? And the Bible says that instead, he chooses suffering with the people of God in the wilderness. So that's a big no and a big yes. So how does he have the ability? What is in him that develops the desire? Have you ever sat down and tried to get a theology of how you develop desire? If you're a parent, isn't the most frustrating thing in the world that you can teach your children, show your children, you cannot give them desires? Haven't you... Can't you want this? Have you ever told your kid, I think I want this for your life more than you do? You can't motivate them. They don't have an issue. Why? It's a desire problem. And Moses said, here's how he had it. Esteeming the riches of Christ. Remember last week? Rather than, more than, greater than. Esteeming the riches of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. Do you see the comparison? greater. He did not deny that the riches of Egypt were great. He didn't deny that there was pleasure in sin. There is. If you're lying to your children and say, hey, you'll never be happy by being immoral, rich, and all those things, you're wrong. The problem is they'll only be happy for a little while. It's never permanent. We need to teach our children, listen, there is greater riches with God. Egypt has this riches, but they don't compare to the riches in God. And you know where they learn that from? Watching you. Watching you make decisions and telling them and showing them by the choices you make, little ones and big ones, every single day. See, this is what matters most. This is the greatest treasure. This is how you live your life with God at the center. This is how you live the new you. I don't just say no to the wrong things. I say no because in doing so, I say yes. Yes to God and his infinite value and worth. What is the treasure that you're teaching your children matters most? It's most to be delightful for. That's why we sang the song tonight. Nothing I desire compares to you. Listen to that. Nothing And you know what? Go home, and I did this week, pray it. Nothing. I want you to know you're better than a car. You're better than a house. You're better than not having cancer. 
You're better than having my children and having another grandchildren come up. You're better than my wife. You're better than this church. You're better than having income. You're better than living to 85 like my father-in-law who turned 85 today. You're better than all those things and many, many more. Tell him, live it, choose it, obey it, live it for your, his glory and the good of your family. Let's pray. Father, help us. I'm reminded tonight, Master, of the quote C.S. Lewis said. The Lord doesn't find our desires too strong. He finds them too weak. He says that we just fool around with sex and alcohol and ambition while infinite joys are offered to us. And then he says, we are far too easily pleased. Oh God, help us. Help us not to be pleased with inferior pleasures, but superior ones, infinite ones. As David said, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, may it be the experience of us and our children, that the greatest joys and pleasures and satisfactions that we ever could possibly experience come from your presence. Now the world's joys, they are but just a name, but not yours. They are eternal, permanent. Blessed be your name. God, help us to live that way because you have died and rose again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.